It's Tuesday, April 12th, and you're listening to episode one of the Baron Pit Podcast. host Josh Kirby, your host for the Baron Pit Podcast. Now, you may be wondering, just what the hell is the Baron Pit Podcast? And let me tell you, that's a great question. The Baron Pit is typically on in a League of Legends game where a 1v1 might happen. At least, that's what people threaten in all chat. So, I figured that would be a great name for my interview podcast. I should have mentioned that it was an interview podcast first, I guess, but I'm kind of doing this on the fly. So, I want to talk to people in and around the League of Legends scene, because I think there's a lot of really cool, interesting people there. And, you know, for the most part, most of them have really good ways of, you know, getting that personality out, be it through streams or other interviews. And, you know, there are just some people that you feel like you might get to know kind of a little bit through their stream or through, you know, whatever interview they may or may not do. But, like, I want to have a more in-depth interview, just like a kind of free-flowing conversation because that's really my goal here, is to just, you know, kind of talk to these people that I've seen on the broadcast for so long, because, I don't know, I kind of just wanted to insinuate myself into the scene. Um, so that's what I'm going to be doing here. So uh, my first guest is Indiana Black, a.k.a. Froskerin, the uh, color commentator for the LPL. She lives down in Australia now. And I think we had a pretty good talk. You know, we had a good time. Um, there were some unfortunate scheduling errors because I live on the east coast of America and she lives all the way the hell in Australia. And that's that's a tough schedule, you know. I, I think they're either 14 or 15 hours ahead of uh, where I am. So uh, you'll hear the audio duck out a couple times throughout the interview and that's just... You know, so, uh, either someone walking in, or at one point we had to completely cut off the interview because uh, I guess she had a prior arrangement, and we picked it back up a couple days later. And so you'll hear the audio cut out a couple times, and I apologize for that. But you know, it's episode one, and it's Australia. Sometimes you have to make a couple concessions. Anyway, on to the interview. Again, this is LPL color commentator. Indiana Froster in Black. Alrighty, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I, again, apologize for timing issues. Yeah, uh, once again, no worries. Alright, so let's just jump right into it. So, you grew up in or around Portland? Uh, yes. So I grew up in a small suburb called Tigard, which is about 15 minutes to 20 minutes outside of Portland. That's not that bad. So (laughs) most of what we think of Portland is, you know, all the crazy stuff like the Keep Portland Weird sign and how much of Portland is actually like that, I guess? That's 100% Portland. Um, Yeah. 
people, I think there's like a dispute about the birth of the hipsters being like Boston or Portland or even Seattle sometimes comes up. Um, I've lived in Seattle as well as Portland and I can 100% say that Portland is far more hipster than Seattle. In fact, everything that people seem to like about Seattle, which is very much the bohemian, um, you know, like Pike's Place Market. Um, Voodoo Donuts. Yeah, Capitol Hill, like those areas of Seattle. That's pretty much the entirety of Portland since it's just a smaller city. Um, but yeah, you have very much like the Voodoo Donuts vibe and a bunch of parks and, you know, yoga and vegan and the light turns green and they just kind of sit there for a second and then they go and it's like, oh, welcome to Portland. Oh, well, I guess I expected it to like be less of a stereotype, but like I've also no, spent, it is. <laughs> yeah, I've spent a fair amount of time in Brooklyn, so I totally understand that also. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I love Portland. It's just you get exactly what you think you're going to get. Yeah. So uh, what your parents do growing up? My parents? Uh, so my mom works as an accountant for a construction agency, and my father is a mortgage broker. That's surprisingly normal, I guess, for Portland. I don't know. I'd expect, like, <laughs> they were both baristas. I have no idea, I guess. No. Uh, yeah, I was born from a coffee bean. Um <laughs> No, I, uh, my mother, I believe, was born in California, actually. My father was born in the Pacific Northwest. Um, but they went to, like, she went to school in Springfield, and he went to school in Beaverton. So he's not technically from Portland. And now uh, my father lives over in Westland, and my mother lives over, actually, I think she just moved into Portland. All right. Uh, brothers and sisters? I have five brothers. Whoa. Yep. I, guess- I have... Um, I have a bunch of half-brothers, and I have one step-brother. My parents were divorced. So the brother on my mother's side, um, I believe he just turned 21 last December, and he goes to University of Oregon. And then the three brothers on my father's side, I have the eldest one, um, who's actually older than me, the only sibling that I have that's older than me. It's my step-brother, but I've known him since I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and he now lives in, I believe, North Carolina. And then my two younger ones are both in high school, I believe, either a freshman or a sophomore in high school, and a junior going on senior in high school. Mm. So uh, when did your parents split up then? Before I was born. Oh, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like those broken condoms and too much tequila? Uh, yeah. We've all been there. uh so like growing up with that many uh just so like no sisters all brothers then yep so that's i'm guessing how you got so far into video games as you did um no actually i've always been the leader on the video game front in all honesty it's definitely where i learned how to like roughhouse with the best of them though oh sure yeah, but uh, again, because I was the oldest sibling for the longest time. So what's interesting is my oldest brother, my stepbrother, uh, were 10 years apart. Mm-hmm. And then my brother on my mother's side, who I mostly spent most of my time growing up with, is, what, five years younger than me? So you think, like, growing up playing video games, as the older sibling, you're going to be the one playing video games? Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of, like, along for the ride. You know, he's player two forever. Yeah, I'm the younger of two, so I yep. I understand that feeling. You get, like, the janky controller. Yeah, totally. Except my brother never had a wave bird, but I did on the GameCube, so it Oh, out. that yeah. is funny. Get in the bottom screen, bitch, you're player two. <laughs> uh, so you grew up mostly with your mom then, I assume? I'm, that's a pure yeah. guess. You didn't actually mention that. 
Um, so my primary household was with my mother. I would visit my father every other weekend or um, scheduled vacations. When I got into high school, I actually spent a significant amount of time living with my father for a short stint. Um, and of like most recently coming into adulthood, I'm probably far closer to my father than I am my mother these days. Okay. Um, so yeah, like you're in Australia, you've been all around, you like, you spent some time in China. Like, I know you worked with Dig EU. Did you actually live in Europe then? No. Um, the plan was, I don't think we actually had a gaming house for the European team then, because we were just in the Challenger series. The plan was to have the gaming house in the UK when they qualified for the LCS, but obviously the spot got sold off. Um, and I only assisted in the team in, uh, what was it? I assisted the year that... Uh, Sencux and Wonder couldn't qualify through age. Oh, yeah, yeah, So yeah. it was effectively just kind of like a um, proving grounds of sorts. We qualified ourselves into the promotion tournament, but then the age rule, uh, there was some miscommunication or misalignment there, and we were unable to compete for the LCS spots. We had to step down. Uh, yeah, I don't... Like, it just becomes a time thing at a certain point, and I haven't really, you know, the... Uh, EU challenger scene isn't really like my main scene. Like I follow NA mostly and <laughs> LCK second and LPL and EU third. So like, the, the, yeah, the specifics of that get kind of lost on me. But um, I, I do remember like like Sencox is a name that's been around for a while, so that does jump out at me. Uh, so like with being in Australia and all around the world, like how close have you stayed with your family? Um, I really don't have a great relationship with my family. I think it's more so, like, I have a relationship with my family now as, like, an adult to adult as opposed from, like, child to parent, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I honestly have no idea how my parents would answer this question, but <laughs> from my point of view, I, I mean, I respect my mother and my father, and I hope that they... Um, find pride in the things that I've been able to accomplish or the things that I continue to do but there's you know I don't I don't call them every day and I don't look for their guidance or acceptance or approval in the things that I do mm -hmm. so like casting professional <clears throat> video games is sort of like a weird career like do they like understand what you do um, I think they have a better understanding of it now. It wasn't until like very recently that I kind of adjusted and fixed. Like, there's a reason why I changed my name. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was actually going to come up later. But let's bring that up now. Why did you change your name? It just simply comes down to, um, you know, I was really angry at my parents for a long time just because of things that happened growing up, and I didn't really want to have the name that they gave me. It didn't feel like it it suited again like I love my parents I respect them I understand like what happened and you know why they made the choices that they did um, but there just like came a point where it's like I don't really want to have that name anymore I would rather just create my own identity and move forward from there chose a pretty good one <laughs> are you sure people tell me it sounds like a porn star's name I mean that's kind of the mark of a good chosen name right <laughs> That's. I was like, I can either be a supervillain or I can be a porn star, and I think I went too far on the porn. No, um, it's actually based off of. So I'm a big avid reader, and I love like movies and things. And growing up, one of my favorite movies was Indiana Jones, and it's literally for Indiana Jones. Yeah, to, like when I saw that you'd, like, I had known. Uh, so like you were born Ryan Moore, right? Devin Ryan Moore. Ryan is my middle name. Okay. I started going by my middle name over my first name when I was a junior in high school. All right, that explains why I didn't know that then. It's all good. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, like, when I saw that you changed your name to Indiana, I'm like, well, the dog's name was Indiana. <laughs> like, that was my immediate reaction. Yeah, pretty much. No, it's uh, it's Indiana for Indiana Jones, um, just because he was, like, my childhood hero growing up. He was so cool. Sure. And then uh, my last name, I was going to pick two of my favorite literary characters, and it was between Hawkins and Black, because I'm a big um, Treasure Island fan. But Hawkins, like Indiana Hawkins, doesn't A sound very good, and Black is the much more common last name, and so I went for the more common one that sounded better. Yeah, like you still wanted to end up with a name that sounded like a name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so you have a fairly individual personal style also. Like you often show up with, you know, whatever color hair that you like, and you have that hard undercut going these days. Like <laughs> when did that start, like, springing up? Like when did you. Like, I'm not going to um, look normal anymore. <laughs> and we're turning this direction. Yeah. Um, oh, no, like, so, I'm not saying No, that. you're fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in high school, um, so I'm open professionally and publicly in my sexuality. I identify as gay. And in high school, I came out to my parents and kind of, like, the world. Um, and that's actually like thinking back on it hindsight 2020 but that's actually when i started going by my middle name as well i don't think there was a coincidence you know i haven't like really sat down and like psychoanalyzed myself on that aspect but um it's when i started going or dropping going from devon and moving to ryan Mm -hmm. um and it was also when you have like that drastic shift in your personality and it's hard for people to I guess empathize if they've never gone through like a state of pretending to be something for you know x amount of years or like repressing something and then coming into you know what i want to be and it's kind of like this mad scramble of you know you cut your hair you dye your hair a different color you completely change your wardrobe nothing is working and you go through that like multiple times but mm-hmm. uh, that was definitely probably like the start of it is like coming out junior to, uh junior to senior in high school and then in terms of like really drastically changing throughout my professional career in esports, which actually hasn't been that long. It's been maybe three to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had really long, dark brown hair um, when I first appeared on Summoning Insight with Thorne, which a lot of people would consider that as like my start, although I was doing things before then. And then it's funny. So this is actually the mentality and the thought process. Um, Obviously, there wasn't the greatest reaction after the summoning insight appearance with Thorn, which I yeah, totally that understand. Got real you know, weird retrospect. What a just. <laughs> We've had conversations about this, um, but when I picked up incoming aggression, because Thorn came to me and he was like, you know, um, I think that there's a lot of good information here. I think it would be really good for your scene. You know, how do we do a show that would? He literally came to me. And he's like, how do we do a show that would get you hired by Riot? Oh well, mission accomplished. And, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I guess it worked. Um, I don't necessarily know if it was the show, but it certainly did help me in, like, you know, formulating thoughts and expressing them and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, at least the start of it. But I made a conscious decision. I was like, okay, so if I have this very negative perception, especially uh, around presentation, not only, like, vocal, but my appearance-wise as well, because that was another big thing, I am going to adjust something and just see what happens so i decided to dye my hair pink and uh, you can actually see it from like episode one to episode two um i have brown hair and i'm not wearing any makeup and i'm just like wearing whatever and then the next episode i have very light makeup on like to make my features appear lighter and i have bright pink hair and i've dressed up and the immediate reaction like you can just go to youtube comments and it's pretty pretty (laughs) obvious 
And so it, it sucks to say like, oh, you know, I'm going to dye my hair pink because I think it can make people like me more. And then it ended up working. You know, superficiality works sometimes. Yeah, that, yeah. Like, I think the pink hair phase is when I first like really noticed you. Like, I, I think you were casting maybe some alpha draft tournament. Yeah, I was doing that with Sifa. Yeah, who just got hired by EU, right? Ah, yes. Yeah, that's exciting. Mmm. <laughs> so, like, it, it was absolutely just, you know, a conscious decision, not like... Yeah, yeah, it was totally conscious. And then when I came to Australia and I got into the casting team, I actually had a conversation with Riot right before going to uh, Sydney. And I was like, do you need me to dye my hair back brown? Because um, I was about to go into the hairdresser again because it kind of fades to this very pastel pink. Mm -hmm. Do you need me to um, like cover my tattoos? You know, I can get makeup. Do you need me to take out my piercings? And my the response from Riot is no. You know, we want you to be comfortable and we want you to have your own brand and your identity and we don't have a problem with it. And so when I got to Oceania, um, that was only more reinforced, um, especially because like, like now we got like our own wardrobe consults. So a guy comes in and like dresses us and we like tell him what we want. And he he was like, I'm going to make you look really K-pop. And so all of my stuff is like leather jackets and um, things like that, like gold rings and hanging jewelry. Um so I'd like Riot, love to have my own wardrobe department. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, so like Riot, like really got behind this idea of just like uh, every caster, you know, that we want. Like they didn't mind, they didn't care about the appearance. Yeah, and I gotta so, say, down in Australia, you yeah. guys have just like the best hair of any casting team. <laughs> we get we get a little intense. <laughs> All right, so this is the first of two scheduled breaks in this episode. Um, I could have just edited it right out, but like we kind of jump over to a different topic, so thought I'd jump in here that you guys know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, you guys have uh, IWCI coming up, so that's understandable. Oh. God, yes. <laughs> but, you know, that's exciting. You get to cast you know, a whole new region. You know, I'd imagine you have a whole lot of uh, research coming up. Uh, I've already, um, so what we do for research for international wildcard is we kind of like divvy it up. Like, you know, you go and research the Russian teams and you take uh, Latin America and you take Brazil. Um, so my teams or my regions that I'm responsible are the LJL or the Japanese region because I used awesome. to be a caster for them. Yeah. And the Brazilian region because I know every single person in the Brazilian scene and Those guys are looking them. strong. Yep. I definitely think that they're the favorite coming in yeah. for the international wildcard. Anytime I've seen the LJL, they just look like they're having so much fun. <laughs> it's a, it's very, it's one of those scenes that has like a very strong, unique flavor. And yeah. I think that if that's like your thing, you can really gravitate towards it as a fan. And that's what makes the LJL a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, like just being video game nerds like we are, we always have that just certain affinity for Japan in general. Yep. I remember when uh, we had International Wildcard last summer split, not the All-Star Tournament, but the one before that. Yeah. Where we had the Bangkok Titans come, and it was Detonation Focus Me. And we just, it turned into Attack on Titan. That's what that cast was. <laughs> yeah, getting like, as many Attack on Titan references as possible. Yeah, like, it, when I first saw their name, like, I was kind of actually disappointed when I found out their name was Detonation Focus Me, because Detonation FM just sounds like the baddest-ass radio station of all time. And then <laughs> I, I was really annoyed when I found out that it was just an acronym. They used to have a sister team. Rabbit 5. Yeah, which have an excellent logo. Yeah. It, so, like, I've always wanted to do... A, this is a complete tangent, but, like, I want to do 
like a video feature on like their whole production thing because like their whole like korea yeah like korea obviously has their own production thing china tends to just kind of rip off korea and it's the same production team (laughs) oh it is actually yes well then i guess that would explain it just put it on the copy machine hit two copies People are like, ah, oh, China just rip off. Well, I mean, China just effectively bought the production team. But yes, China tends to do that sometimes. The thing that people don't, it's really hard as a Westerner to kind of look at the LPL and like realize what's really cool about it. Um, yeah. Because it, it's just hard to get that access. Like you have to think, um, you know, 3,000 people, like their stadium for just their normal LPL games is massive. And That's I don't know huge. if you've ever been. Yeah, to the NALCS or the ULCS, but it's a much smaller venue, you know, much more intimate. Not that they don't have their, you know, not that they're not cool, but there's something very unique about China where every LPL game you go to, it, it's like a massive event. Um, and it's the grandeur and the, I don't know, the size of it all. It, I mean, you can't say that China is the best league in the world, but you can certainly say that it's like the biggest and most explosive. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like you see like stream the numbers the in the millions, which is crazy. Like you look at a you know the highest rated stream on Twitch or whatever, and it's like thirty five thousand, and then you yeah. see Messiah raking in like a million viewers whenever he's on. That's crazy. <laughs> I think that those stream numbers are a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit questionable, but they're definitely it. It definitely is a very large audience, and the um, the Chinese esports market is very healthy. Mm-hmm. So, like, why is it that, like, when you were first coming up, China really started appealing to you? Uh, I'm actually a Moscow Five fan. Um, that was the first team that I really fell in love with. Um, That's understandable. You... Like going back all those times, like I mean mid usually so like Alex Hitch was certainly one of my first heroes when I started watching it I just I always describe it like there was this very set meta you know North America was still um, like one of the CLG EU was kind of like the big team North America was still a very respectable very strong region there was a very yeah, very set play style. Uh, you remember, like, all the protect the Twitch compositions and yeah. things like that, where you just, like, stack all the shields on and just have, you know, double lift, or not even double lift, but just have the AD carry, like, open up and destroy someone. And then suddenly, uh, these crazy Russians come out of nowhere, and they're doing these things that no one had ever seen before. They, they've got the double jungle, where they just kick their support out of the lane, <laughs> and he roams around, and it's just this roaming gank squad. And I was like, this is this is incredible. They literally, not that they broke the meta, but they completely changed the meta. Yeah. Um, and they were pushing boundaries, and it was just so exciting to watch because it was like no one expected anything from this, and they just come out of nowhere, and it's such a great narrative. And so, um, you know, I, I fell in love with Moscow 5. I was like, they're super aggressive. They, they force you. My ideal way to play League of Legends is that you should play so aggressive that you force mistakes out of someone and then you capitalize on those Mm -hmm. mistakes. Where a lot of teams um, will play really defensively and then they just wait for the other team to naturally screw up and then they capitalize on it. Because obviously the risk versus reward, if you're constantly playing aggressive, it's very easy to have that aggression turned against you and, and dig yourself a hole. Um, it's like the difference between executing a tower dive correctly or not. And so uh, my friends are like, you know, if you really like that style of league and you really like, um, you know, really aggressive in-your-face teams, you might want to consider looking into the Chinese teams. So my love of Moscow 5, one of Europe's, like, king teams, uh, got me into my love of Chinese League of Legends. 
Yeah, I mean, that was, for the longest time, the stereotype about China, like, you know, the pictures on Reddit of Chinese towers, and it's just, you know, the open field or whatever. And, <laughs> like, do you think that with all the Korean influence these days, some of that's sort of gone? I don't know. What do you mean? Like, do you think that that identity of China just being, like, crazy, dive all over the place, fight every single minute? Oh. But, like, Ch Korea tends to be, you know, very reserved, fight around dragon, fight around objectives. Like, do you think that um, that's sort of gone a little bit? They're, so Invictus Gaming, after their poor showing at Worlds, actually made comments about this. And this is actually a very, you know, apt question. Um, I believe Kakao said, we came into Worlds and we tried to play like a Korean team and it didn't work. So we gave up and we just went back to playing like a Chinese team and we started to win. And even the Chinese fans, there's kind of like this outcry or this frustration. I believe it was Wei Xiao recently in an interview was just, no, nah, maybe it was FCZF. He was just upset that Chinese teams um, just play so aggressive and they have like this very unique play style. And then they go abroad and they try to play like Koreans or play the international meta. And there's this feeling throughout the fans that we wish that Chinese teams would just play their style because that's what made them great. Um, and then you kind of get into the counter argument of, uh, you know, the Chinese style only works because other Chinese teams will bait into it. And that if they truly played the Chinese style, when we do see it, it would just get absolutely smashed by, you know, the EU or the NA or the Korean meta um, just because it's so subpar. And, you know, you can you can get back and forth like that. But yeah, you can it's kind of say long... that about any region, really. Like, oh, North America but... looks super strong. And then they go to an international competition and nope. It's uh, it's. It's part of the fun of international events. I just, I really wish that China would just play their style of League of Legends and stop trying to imitate something. And it's like, then comes down to, you know, what is Chinese League of Legends? And most people will say like, oh, you know, aggressive, tower dives, constantly in your face. Uh, and it's more so this idea that, like, you have to think, why, are, why don't Chinese teams lane swap? Like, why does that never happen? And it's the attitude of, like, the players and the... Um, the coaching staff and even the commentators in the crowd is that we they love fighting and this idea of like 1v1 me like I can beat you I know I have the better mechanics I know that I'm mechanically more talented like what was so awesome about Chinese teams is and they understand when they shouldn't fight like they they can very well identify when they're behind it's not like Chinese teams will constantly only fight and that's their only way forward like Chao Gu is a very famous team and they're we call them the kings of team fighting where they would constantly fall behind early game every single time and what they would do is they would just trade objectives across the map because they knew that they couldn't fight so Chinese teams are very good at we have fallen behind we cannot fight this because we will lose and they understand exactly when the right time to fight but the thing is is unlike um, like like Korean teams will only fight when they 100% know that they're going to win. This was also a, a big thing about the European meta, although the European meta has definitely shifted out of this. Remember when like Europe was like really slow? Oh, yeah, and just, just like, like very farm for 45 minutes and then suddenly Froggen has 1,000 CS. But it's this idea that um, we'll only fight when we for sure know. And like there's nothing wrong with that playstyle. Obviously, that worked out brilliantly for them. Um, but in China, if it's a 50-50... And it's like, we have no idea. This can go either way. We're dead even. The Chinese teams will fight because they have this mentality. I can beat him. I'm better than him. I can mechanically outplay him. And that's like, that is the true spirit of China. And yeah. that's what I wish that they would do more. Yeah. And uh, so when did you, uh, so you mentioned, sorry, I just 
got totally lost there. Uh, it's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you mentioned talking to the Thorn on Summoning Insight. And, mm -hmm. like, when does that line up with, like, you starting China Talk? Um, I was doing China Talk. So Thorn contacted me because uh, he had watched my stream. And I'm assuming he'd also read some of Kelsey's articles and was diving there. Um, but I used to do a stream called the LPL Ian stream. And I did it with a guy named Nero Integrate. He was this Polish guy. He had a very thick accent, and he was uh, casting over the Chinese stream by himself. And Kelsey and I had tried to start a Chinese cast or a Chinese stream cast, um, but we saw that this one already had um, like a sponsor, kind of like a very small following between like eight to twenty people. And we said instead of like splitting the viewer base there, why not just jump on board with him? And so we started working with Nero, um, and Thorin watched those casts and then approached me to come on Summoning Insight and to talk about China. I think I actually remember watching that exact stream, like, maybe before you got it, because I remember thinking, like, man, no one's covering China. Maybe I should do that. And, yeah, it turns it, out I'm, a, just, was... I'm just a terrible caster. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty awful. Um so the technical difficulties in doing that is you're syncing up a Chinese stream, which is very difficult because it uh, notoriously has latency problems or stalling out problems. Mm -hmm. And if you get desynced, you can very easily be within 20 to 30 seconds apart from each other, which obviously if you're casting that is a major tough. problem. Likewise, if it, it's very difficult to cast um, remotely because a lot of casting, especially when you get up to like the higher levels, is about cues and being able to look at your partner and signal that you're handing off to them or have that conversation. Whereas if you can't see each other, I mean, you're competing with, you know, maybe your neighbors are asleep, maybe your mom's asleep, maybe your dog's asleep, you have to be quiet. Um, you can't communicate visually with your, with your co-caster. But yeah, I, from there, it just it grew, and we picked up like pyrotechnics and rapid casting and people like that. Yeah, I, I, I remember also watching it like with you, and I think it was Pyra that I was watching it, and, like thinking, "Oh, good, someone did that thing I was gonna do. Whatever, I'm gonna go back to bed now." <laughs> yeah, we were up. We started at um, I think like twelve, like midnight, and we would go all the way to like nine a.m. That's dedication it was it was something it was hilarious <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like how long were you spent like just working for yourself like that before you know it started looking like riot might actually be interested in picking you up uh whoo <laughs> long time actually um i pretty much i kind of shot myself in the foot with riot for a very long time obviously the appearance on summoning insight was not the most beneficial yeah they seem to not like that show very much um it's not even that they it was definitely you know presentation and you know why would riot want to work with anyone who was um like a, abrasive like that and obviously in that format you're just getting like a single slice of someone so it's not it's not the same as like sitting down and getting to know them yeah um but as like a first impression that was not the right foot to start on and so for a very long time it was a it was kind of a strenuous relationship um with riot and you know still fixing things and working towards uh, different goals now yes and like you also did just a bunch of challenger work also like so i guess my question is like what's the difference between like really hustling for those gigs and like 
the light at the end of the tunnel, which is, you know, your full-time job now? Um, you have to, oh, wow, it's very different. You kind of, I did so many different gigs. It's kind of, there's a very tight-knit, or at least there was, I don't know how the scene is now. Um, there's a very tight-knit, like, amateur casting scene where everyone knows everyone because the gigs are so few and far between. The issue is, is that there's not really a farm system in place for moving up into, you know, like, the professional circuit of League of Legends. Yeah, like, back uh, when you were coming up, I remember, like, there was, you know, there was that Alpha Draft League for a little bit. There was the... EPS. Yeah, uh, there was uh, NACL, which got super weird with not paying anyone. And yep. yeah, like there was, you know, you, you said rapid, you know, EGAD, God, remember Wombat, whatever happened to Wombat? <laughs> there was, um, Malthus X, EGAD, oh, yeah. uh, Optimus Tom, Azumu, Optimus Tom, Panky, uh, Pyrotechnics, myself, uh, Tasty Nubbins, Foraxic, uh, Silver Dirge, who else? Wow, I was Spell Ruler, Tech, uh, what was his name? Techno, he's a European caster, or he was, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of people, and it was, it was very, like, tight-knit, mostly through, like, GoFalol or in EPS. Um, the big production company is well-played, and effectively, yeah, like, yeah, Twitch yeah. or Riot would hire... I think... I don't they did, know uh, exactly like, promotion tournaments, right? Yeah, yeah, but Riot would... Someone would give Twitch control to make a broadcast or produce a broadcast, and Twitch would contract it out to well-played most of the time. Oh. And so if you knew the well-played guys, they would obviously pick the casters that they knew or had a, um, a reputation with. And so that's where I got a lot of gigs is because well-played had worked with me in the past and liked me and so decided to pick me there. Same thing with Sifa, actually. Yeah. Um but it's just, it's a very, like, no one, hardly anyone is getting paid. About maybe 1% of the gigs that you do will get paid. And so you're putting in countless hours of not only practice, but also doing the actual events for nothing. I think um, NACL, like the collegiate games, uh, that was like 16 hours a day at some points. It was, it was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, so a lot of that's kind of gone away with, you know, Riot really making the challenger scene their own like do you kind of worry about you know the future especially of casting it's something that i've really thought about like i don't know how new casters can get discovered We're these days definitely running into that problem right now um yeah. uh there there is an issue you have to think you know all of the leagues are expanding moving to best of three formats or best of two formats um so there is uh, a need for new casters you have new casters coming up you know sifa just being announced things like that stress and pulse yeah um coming online and you know training them up and the issue is is that there's there's no farm system and another big issue is that there's no it's very hard to find like a, a dialogue or a systems in terms of like this is how you cast these are the mechanics of casting this is how we define everything in casting and this is how it's supposed to work um i believe pastry time has like okay so if you don't know pastry time and a lot of people for some reason don't know about pastry time he's literally one of the greatest casters in league of legends oh he's fantastic yeah but because and i'm not even just like 
obviously I, I work with him, so I am biased there, but just straight up, he's technically one of the best casters and no one knows it because he doesn't, he's not on like a major, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the audience of the NALCS or the EULCS or yeah. um, getting those big mainstream stages. But technically speaking, and also his knowledge and how he communicates about casting is so superb. Um, he does a lot of the development and training for casters in the OS department. And oh, really? I don't know if he reaches out globally. I know that there were some systems, but um, but he has like an old blog, like maybe six or seven years old because Pastry Time has been casting for like six years. Um, but again, wow. just like really small events that no one, like he never got the big exposure that he deserved. Um, yeah, he was over he, for, what was it, All Stars one year? And there was, a, like, was he ever supposed to come over to North America or did I just dream that? <laughs> I think everyone kind of dreamed that. That there was always this moment, like, man, wasn't that wasn't that Australian guy supposed to be here? Yeah, I was super excited because you know seeing him at the special event, like he was fantastic, like you said, and then he, he is, just he is superb. Yeah, um, that's that's all I can say about Pastry Time. But oh yeah, the issue is is like he's got you know some articles uh, like seven years old about casting, like the mechanics of casting. Um, but they're just, they're not readily available. And so a big issue is not only do we not have farm system where tournaments are in place or leagues are in place where amateur casters can get in and start getting that experience so we have people to pick from, but it's also just really hard to to find and define, you know, like this is how you set up a narrative. Um, this is how you how you shelve things in a cast. This is, you know, what the flow is and what the cadence of the cast is. And uh, these are, this is like what a pickup sounds like. And this is a handoff. And this is the space where the color caster should be talking. And this is the dynamic of a tri cast. And this is what a swing caster is. And that also then reflects not only in finding new recruits, but also in feedback with the community. Because, um, you know, everyone's going to have a very strong opinion on, you know, I like this caster, I don't like this caster. Uh, but because there's no standardized vocab, um, it's very hard to utilize the community as like a resource for feedback. Um, because, you know, the, they can say, I don't like this caster, you know, I, I don't like how this caster sounds, I don't like what he's saying, he doesn't know anything. But it's hard to to say like, oh, you know, this caster has like this pickup was bad and this caster's primary problem is like the cadence of their speech mm -hmm. or the this caster is taking up too much it's just like the the minute details yeah and that's kind of one of those unsolvable problems because like the people saying you know th this guy's terrible or frostgren's cast was terrible or whatever like those people aren't going to be the ones that have the vocabulary either mm -hmm. yeah so like yeah, I really have no idea what the answer is for like rebuilding that challenger scene of season three, season four. It's it, frankly, it's hard, and I think this was something that Riot overlooked or maybe wasn't considering, and now are uh, kind of almost paying the price for it a little bit, especially as the leagues are expanding and we're trying to find you know more talent. <laughs> uh, so let's move forward to like moving to Austra uh, moving to China for the first time. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, like, that's a huge thing. China is a crazy country for an American. For just, like, it, like you said before, it's really opaque. Like, um, how did that happen? So, I got the opportunity to work with a team called Roar, and most people will fondly remember it as Chaos's team. And our oh, roster yeah, okay. was uh, Yuno, or Romelia, um, Inori, Chaos, and then we had the, the plan was to take three North American players 
and to go over and pick up our Chinese players that were already selected for us. But what ended up happening is they shipped us to China and uh, made us try out Chinese players when we got there. So the, the purpose was to use it as a boot camping for the NACS. And what it ended up happening was using it as a recruiting resource. And it was uh, not very well run. I mean, the, the organization, I think, had good intentions and they're by no means a, a shady organization or mm-hmm. you know screwed players over or anything like that. Um, but they didn't have a lot of experience with esports. And so I, I think the team's success certainly suffered from lack of structure and lack of organization. But the experience itself was uh, very good. Yeah, kind of seeing that a lot these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we, we spent uh, quite a bit of time in China um, working with the different clubs over there as well as just kind of living every day in Shanghai. Um, Did you get to tour any of their crazy houses, like those like huge facilities? Uh, no, it was mostly we would be dealing with managers and managers would have like a rotation of players and bring them to us mm. um, from like various clubs or like communicating with people and trying to fit oh, it was It's crazy. Um, like the fact that a club, I think we worked closely with EPA, which is the Energy Pacemaker Club, and a little bit with Team WE and Starhorn. Um, oh, it was cool too because we also got like set up with scrims. Oh, I could finally talk about this because it's like it's done. Oh. Hey! We were so we were so positive. We thought the team was going to do so well in NACS. Like besides the disaster of trying to find the actual players to come and be on the roster, um, at the time we were taking a top laner, a Korean from Brazil who was now back in Korea, but he dropped that at the last second, and so we had to pick up a very last second new top laner right before the NACS, who ended up being Phase Killer, and then we also had Spicy, um, who was a top mid laner from. Uh, China. He had played in the LSPL and qualified a team for the LPL, but unfortunately was then kicked back into the LSPL due to like roster changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we were scrimming team. We scrimmed LGD. We scrimmed Starhorn Royal Club. Um, we scrimmed Snake. Uh, so many LPL teams, and we actually beat Starhorn Royal Club. <laughs> On multiple occasions, right after they had been to the finals of um, the world, you know, the world stage, yeah, yeah, we're like, yeah. okay, you know, obviously they're they're probably not taking this scrim super seriously, but you know, no one wants to get beat, no one likes to get beat. <laughs> so we we went in with like high hopes. Oh man, it was very, it was really unfortunate when it ended up happening with that team. I think mm-hmm. if we had got the original roster, it would have been fine. All right, so this is where we had to cut it off for a couple of days. Um, I think we recorded that originally on a Thursday, and this is us picking it up on Monday. When last we left our intrepid heroine, she was in China with Team Roar. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I got the opportunity to go to China with a North American Challenger team. Uh, Team Roar is most notably recognized as Chaox's team after his departure from TSM, so I got to work with, um, I think our end lineup was Phase Killer, Anori, Spicy, Chaos, and Yuno, otherwise known as Romelia, from formerly of the Renegades. Yeah. So, uh, like, when does this line up with like when you started casting, like officially, like not necessarily with Riot, but like when you started realizing, like, I'm I'm going to try to be a caster. Um. Well, I mean, I 
done a lot of casting between this, but this was kind of like my big deep dive onto um, coaching. And I, I worked for a couple different teams. Also worked as like a like an assistance to a lot of teams, especially in their preparation for worlds or international events. Like typically this is how it goes. It's like, oh, an international competition is coming up and teams will then like send their little feelers out and they'll be like, we need information on the Korean and the Chinese teams. And typically when people need information on China, they come to me or Kelsey. Um, so casters preparing. Uh, what other teams do you work with? Uh, I can't say. Ah, uh, one of those. <laughs> um, I've worked for a couple of LCS teams, and I have worked for, like, the open teams that I've been on, like, coaching staff for have been Roar and uh, Dignitas EU, mm -hmm. who is now Splice. Which, uh, fun roster. Yeah. Uh, like, when you got back from China, like, did you move back to Portland at that point? Um, where did I go after China? I think I went back to Chicago. Ooh. Yes. I believe so. And then from Chicago, I went to Australia. That's quite the move. All right, so, like, when you went to Australia, that was, like, your big break as a caster. Like, yep. you had obviously been doing a lot of amateur casting before. And so, like, what was the transition like from, you know, hustling for gigs to, oh, this is my full-time job now? <laughs> Um, so obviously the dream was always to, to be a riot caster. Um, even, hmm, even when I was with Roar, it was very clear that if Riot ever, uh, offered me the position to come and cast the LPL, that I would leave the organization immediately and, and go do it. And when I came back to China, I think that's also when I picked up the Dignitas EU position and Odie and Broken Shard or Ram, who I was working with at the time, were very much of the understanding that, you know, if Riot comes knocking, that's where I will be going. Um, and uh, I went to MSI, which was held in Tallahassee, which was a great event, actually. You know, people look at the venue like Tallahassee, and, and I agree. Probably wasn't the greatest city, but the actual venue itself of, like, the stadium and the size of it, I thought was very well done. Um, now, if only it wasn't in some place like Tallahassee, but... <laughs> Uh, I enjoyed MSI a lot. Obviously, China wins that event, so that was a big high point for me. Yeah, th um, that was a great event, and like I just felt terrible for all the people coming over from like Korea and China, visiting sunny Tallahassee, Florida. <laughs> Welcome. No, it was it was very fun too because there was only like one hotel that everyone was staying in, so I actually felt that that actually uh, the sounds kind of rad. Yeah, it was like it was much smaller because the fans had more access to the professional players. I'm sure the, the players were probably annoyed with it at some point, but I, I assume that a lot of them also like interacting with their fans and having that um, type of feedback. But there was a, a hotel fire that happened. And Fun. Yeah, well, I, I actually think just, no, I think there were, actually were flames. No one was hurt. But the hotel had to be evacuated for about two hours, and it was after one of the games. So you literally had, like, the entirety of, like, TSM sitting out on the lawn and, um, like, the Korean, you know, at SKT just kind of chilling out and all, all right, of that the actually, fans like, there. I was joking before, that actually does sound kind of fun, just, like, having yeah. all these pro players from around the world just hanging out. 
Yeah, it was cool. Everyone was in the area. We couldn't go back into the hotel, and the the players were so obviously like very patient. The fans were also very respectful. Like if you know a player was just kind of like chilling and sitting down, like you know people didn't go up and bother them, and but they would you know stand up and take pictures and just kind of chat and talk. So it wasn't more like it wasn't like a fan meet. It was just like oh we're all in this area. Let's just all have a conversation. I believe the Korean players did get lined up at some point though, and were taking pictures, and it was so cute. Wolf would get so excited. When people came over to take a picture with him, as opposed to someone like Faker, because you know, like Faker is gonna get swarmed, but Wolf just kind of stands to the side. And it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so when people would be like, "Oh, Wolf, can I can I take a picture with you?" You'd be very very receptive to it. Yes, yeah. I, I, like whenever you see the Korean players, like the outsider perspective is that you know they're rock stars over there, but like really, yeah. anytime you see them interact with fans, they're just as giddy as the fans and i think that's super awesome it's the same thing with the chinese players too it's funny um countless times because again you know not many western fans uh a will recognize the chinese players or know much about them and so a lot of time edg would just be like sitting down in the lobby and people would just be constantly but like if tsm did that they're gonna get swarmed um and i oh, i walked up to uh, I walked up to you, who was the previous mid laner for EDG and was still a sub on the team. He then would later transfer to Snake Esports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, you, can I, can I take a picture? And he was shocked that I knew who he was. So it was cute. Yeah, all right. So moving to Australia for a permanent gig. Like, you've obviously moved all around in your life. And, like, this is the first time where, like, you could actually, like, really settled down, I guess, in a completely foreign nation. So, yeah. like, what was the decision-making there like? Like, obviously, you said your dream was to work for Riot and, you know, uh, cast the LPL, and that takes place in China. But at the same time, you're moving several hemispheres away. Like, what was that like? Um, I mean, effectively, it was the the dream position. So this was, like, the shot um, and I was going to take it. I was in a relationship at the time when I chose to move to Australia. Unfortunately, the relationship did not survive, uh, like the transition. Well, that's a uh, biggie. Her-, <laughs> her career went one way and my career went the other way. Um, so, I mean, that in itself was, was very sad, but at the same time, you're absolutely correct. Like I've, I, I wasn't super close or I'm not super close to my parents. Like I respect them. We have kind of like an adult to adult relationship and not necessarily like a parent to child relationship, at least not from my perspective. I don't know. Maybe if you interviewed my parents that they would say something completely oh, different. Oh, they're next. <laughs> Get in line. Um, Episode two, Frostgren's parents coming up. <laughs> well, I'm really disappointed. No, um. <laughs> Uh, so this was like literally my first time to set down roots effectively. Like I'm going to create a circle of friends because working in esports, majority of your, your inner circle, you know, most of the time you've never even met them or when you meet them, you meet them at events. Um, so it wasn't like I had a lot of community based like to my geographic location. It was just community through what I did. And so coming into Australia, it's like, okay, I'm going to have a place to live now and I'm going to make local friends. Um, and I'm going to actually set up, you know, like a family. And I do have that now. So I consider, I do consider like Sydney my home. Um, like my really good friends, uh, Stephen and Maddie. Um, my coworkers, I'm actually very close to in the OS region just because we're a very close working team. Like I consider uh, Jake Spawn, my boss, like very good friend of mine. Um, same thing with like Julian and Rusty and uh, Atlas and Fish. 
So it was it was a very different experience, like finally having the chance to say, like, okay, so this is where I want to be for probably a good majority of my life and a good majority of my career. Um, let's start setting everything up for the first time. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's life like in Australia compared to America? Like, I've only ever lived on the east coast <laughs> of America, and like, this is just me being kind of curious, like. The is day-to-day I... life really all that different in Australia, or is it just weird accents and wallabies all the time? <laughs> I've never seen a wallaby. Oh, man, um, what about also... a wombat? I love wombats. I've never seen a wombat, but Come I've heard on. stories. Um, the biggest thing is that the internet here, for majority of the places that I've been, is atrocious. Um, and there's reasons for that. And you can get good internet, but it's it's almost like you have to pick where you live to it reach that like high standing internet um so i don't actually spend a lot like in america you know you come home and like ah oh, netflix and chill time and time to sit on my computer like if i go home to um, my place in australia that nope i'm reading books so i started transitioning how i spent my time and instead of watching netflix i read books now and what i would do is i would go out to like newtown and go to a bookstore buy a blind date with a book which you just like has writing on a brown piece of paper that covers the book so you can't see and it's like oh crime novel the sarcasm dark humor and you like pick it and then you go to uh one of the amazing restaurants and you sit and you read and then i'll go to like a dessert like get some ice cream sit read then go get coffee or go to like a a bar sit read and then go home as opposed to like sitting down playing league for nine hours in my evenings yeah, like, the number one complaint in America these days is, like, how far our broadband is behind, like, the rest of the world. And, like, you just think of Australia as having, like, a fairly concentrated population, all told. But, like, it's still a big continent very far removed from the world. And I I guess, I, you know, you think of Korea or Japan as having, like, really also small, con- like, really condensed populations. And they have just bonkers internet. <laughs> There um, is definitely yeah, I, I a uh, a very strong conversation with Australians yeah. concerning their uh, internet infrastructure. Yeah, I got deep into Halo recently the, with the most recent Halo 5, and like the number one complaint was, players in Australia can't match with anybody. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's not that many people in Australia, and they can't match to other, other servers. Yep, but it's also kind of a bigger issue, not even just in esports. You have to think uh, Australia is very far removed and it's very expensive to import things. And, you know, uh, the internet globalized a lot of uh, systems and industries. And if you don't have really strong internet, it's very hard to compete in uh, the industrial or the global industri- industry. So it's like not just an esports thing, it's like actually a very sensitive topic. <laughs> But yeah, it's, and like there's it's the whole thing about like Australia for the longest time not having like their 18 rating, so anything that had too much violence and it was just banned and you had to import it from New Zealand, like they've relaxed that a little bit in recent years. Like I don't I don't know like how far you reach out into other games besides League of Legends, but I know that was a real problem for a number of years. I was very upset that I bought a, a new DS, like one of the larger ones, and I bought it in Australia and That's I tried I to play. Yeah, I got region locked. Oh, bummer! Yeah, I tried to play all of my... Because I own a bunch of games, but I have, like, an older DS, and I can't play my American... Which, that's more of Nintendo, it's not Australia. Oh, Um, it's not just about Nintendo. Like, uh, Danny O'Dwyer of GameSpot.com came over to San Francisco from uh, Ireland, and he constantly complains about his 360 being Irish, and, you know, all of his more recent stuff being in San Francisco... 
So that's all NA locked also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more but, the re, the, uh, the PS4 and the Xbox One are all region free, but the 3DS and the Wii U are real problems. But uh, then, like buying games in Australia is so expensive. Uh, there's some sort of digital. I don't know how it works exactly, but there's like a digital tax that goes on to the games, even if you're downloading them. Games in Australia are very, very expensive. So it's a it's a very hard hobby to have in Australia. You been playing anything recently? Um, I own a PS4, and I like to play Fallout. Fallout's real good. But I like to build things, so I spend most of my days collecting ingredients to build light bulbs. And I then mean, that's string- smart. Stringing the light bulbs around for my city. Yeah, it, it, I definitely built a lot of light bulbs. No, I'm with you. Yeah, and I'm like really. I mean, I've I've created a basketball court, and there's a, an apartment complex that goes over the basketball court. But you know, it's open bar, so people can go up there and watch the basketball game. That will never happen. <laughs> that sounds fun, though. Like just yeah. hang around a basketball court, having a good time. Like that's yeah, fun for I everybody. To, like trap Codsworth in there with uh, some of my other allies. So maybe maybe it turns into like Fight Club. I went straight for Curie, personally, because I love a French robot like Binary Domain. <laughs> I usually travel with Piper. I, I mean, I went with Piper because she's the better ally. But, like, you go and, with the... And like, why does a robot have a French accent? Just program it with whatever, whatever accent you want. That's true. So, yeah, like, there was a Gears of War knockoff by the guy that actually made uh, the Yakuza games called Binary Domain. And Was that it, the only person who liked the Yakuza games? Oh, no. Like, I think the Yakuza games are just super fascinating. I don't think they're fantastic games, but just, like, as slices of Japanese culture, I think they're really, really cool. I thought it was fun. They're still making them. Really? Yeah. Uh, Yakuza 5 just, I think, came out in America. That's too deep for me. Yeah. But, like, Binary Domain, there was this French robot... And since it was a Gears of War knockoff, like, you were shooting guns all the time, and, like, he would go, reloading! And it was just super fun to have him around. (laughs) Anyway, I will shout about Binary Domain whenever I have the chance. I think it's a fantastic game that no one ever played. That's fair. All right, back to League of Legends. So, like... (laughs) Uh... What's the largest crowd that you've ever casted in front of? Like, normally... On LPL, you're just casting in a, I assume, a fairly empty studio. Did you ask me what was the largest crowd? Yeah. Um, probably Kespa Cup. Oh, yeah, you did that, didn't you? Mm-hmm. That was uh, an experience. That was um, a weird I... tournament all around. No yeah, one cared it... about that. <laughs> it was an excellent tournament. I was actually very, uh, I, I, mean, I thought the games were very interesting because it was coming into a, a brand new patch. It was really cool. It was funny. When we were sitting down and prepping for it, um, I remember I looked over at Sifa. We were in a cafe. I was like, Lissandra is going to be a priority pick. And he's like, what? No <laughs> one's playing Lissandra. I was like, no, you don't understand. Like double, Because the concept is, is this was the cool thing. It was after SKT um, dominated at Worlds with this really beautiful semi-global comp. I don't think people would even account for it to be a semi-global comp. Like you'd be like, what? Faker played Rod? and um i always want to say benji bingy mm-hmm. i always do that uh bingy played like rexi but you have to think like a priority uh, contested pick was shin from the support position and why from the support position because then you get to utilize a, a semi-global presence with your ultimate and then also take the double tp into the top lane on a character that wouldn't utilize that like most people look at like global comps like oh you know like ash twisted fate uh shin 
something like that. You know, Rexi fits into that too. Yeah, exactly. But that was the thing. It was um, a priority pick and priority on uh, Shin support and Rek'Sai in the jungle alongside a double TP meta because that's how SKT would counter it. Uh, and it was just, it was beautiful to watch. I was like, ah, oh, we're going to have the rise of the, the double DP. Like, rise will probably be like a, a, a band pick and will be recognized for its strength. Faker showed how potent and, and powerful it is. But this is the death of Azir. Like, Azir is not going to come back from this because he, and, and Victor as well, because they can't compete in a double TP meta. Because if Victor or Azir takes fucking teleport, um, they TP down to the bottom lane or they TP to the top lane and they are so screwed because they're very fragile, very immobile. Azir ne- needs top time to to set up his sand soldiers he can't just tp in and be like oh, okay my maximum amount of damage at least victor can like teleport in like drop the base like chaos storm rocks across someone but chances are he's going to blow up but a champion like rise or lissandra um like lissandra's down there and immediately frozen to him where she's got her glacial path and she can catch up on to you and just like snap you away and likewise lissandra acts as not a, a hard counter to rise but as a good answer to rise because the thing is you have to keep rise locked down so you have to have pushing power but you also have to p- have protection because if rise ever walks up onto you and he does have a significant long range to just cc lock you forever uh lissandra at least has like some options there and then gangplank was the other big pick because of course he's got a citrus he can walk out of rise's stun um he's also going to bring semi-global presence or global presence with his ultimate so it's not necessarily his TP because again he's in an Azir situation where if he TPs he needs time to set up his barrels and do damage which is why it's really important that if GP is ever entering like a dragon fight he needs to TP early it cannot be a reactionary TP so if it's ever a reactionary play it's usually just like the counter barrage and Godspeed team hope that was enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah so um, like that tournament was super weird because it seemed like you know, the reigning champions, SKT, just kind of didn't give much of a shit that tournament. Like, was that any of a letdown for you? Does, like, with it being um, admitted no, your biggest crowd? Uh, no, not at all. Um, and you also have to, like, understand the... It was very clear that when the... Uh, at the time, the Tigers... Were they the Koo Tigers still? The, the Tigers. The Rocks Tigers <laughs> were going into... Uh, that tournament with very little preparation time. They effectively played the old, I can't even remember the patch. They were playing the world's patch on like the very next patch. Mm -hmm. You you know, there wasn't a priority on Kindred and you kind of got the feeling that it was like, let's just see how this works. Like, let's just try it. Let's just find out. Um, Whereas teams like CJ, like KT were obviously practicing very hard, um, getting used to the new patch. Um, CJ in particular was probably one of the most well-adjusted teams other than teams like Ever, who of course ended up winning. Um, whereas like SKT, KT, and Koo were like, uh, you know, we just got back from Worlds. Uh, we don't know, maybe the players have had like a vacation time. They probably didn't go 110% into preparing for this tournament. So it was more like a good step back. This is a brand new patch, you know, Kindred's enabled. Um, see what the most elite region in the world and how they're going to deal with this meta shift. Mm-hmm. So, like, with that tournament came a lot of, well, Frostgren isn't Monty and Doa, so fuck her. Like, what did that really <laughs> kind of feel like as Frostgren? Oh, it, like, I knew that going, you people have to understand that, um, I mean... I can't say that, because maybe I can. I mean, how, how do you think I actually got that gig? Like, who do you think 
put me up for it. I mean, it's fairly obvious when you take a single second to think about it, but <laughs> most people don't take that second. So, and obviously there were, you know, reasons why someone like Doa or Monty or Papa Smithy could not take the gig because it's being done by Spo TV and not OGN and they're contracted to OGN. So that's strange. So obviously they, they were kind of locked out. Um, so the thing is, it, it couldn't be Monty, Doa or Papa Smithy. Um, and thankfully I had someone who shall remain nameless. Uh <laughs> Uh, suggest me for the position because they thought that I would be a good fit. Um, I thought the thing about that cast is people have to understand that I was casting with Sifa um, and Sifa of course now announced for the ULCS. He's a very good friend of mine. I've known him for a long time. We've casted together on very small events but A, this is going to be his first live cast ever and B, uh, he was primarily a color caster at the time. So there's two different types of casters. There's your play-by-play -play caster and there's your color caster. Um, your color caster is going to be your analytical caster. Your play-by-play -play caster is going to be your hype guy. In terms of... Um, I don't know why I'm trying to explain this as f in like a football context because you know League of Legends. The audience who listens to this will know <laughs> League of Legends. Uh, but it, I, I think it's fair to say that anyone who listens to this podcast has never watched a League of Legends stream before and so go on. <laughs> I it's because uh, I always have this conversation to people who don't understand esports. I'm like, it's kind of like the NFL. So like, your play-by-play -play caster is the guy that's like, oh, the twenty, the fifteen, the five touchdown, and then your analytical caster jumps up over the top of him. It's like, oh yeah, you know, they're beating them off the line of scrimmage. There's holes uh, down deep in the uh, in their defense, and they're able to just drive it past the safety, and it's a free walk into the end zone. You know, like they jump in with the information. Yeah, like when it uh, really clicked for me was when Riot really started hiring former pros for the color commentary. Like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, this is just like a real sport. <laughs> but it's what people don't understand is how uh, a cast is led. Like, right now, my, ba my best casting partner is Pastry Time. And Pastry Time is an incredible play-by-play -play caster. He's probably one of the best. I consider him one of the best in the world in his position. He can sound um, the sizzle, man. He's very good at what he does. He's very technically sound. Um... And the thing about pastry time is that when you cast with him, he like he pushes you and he challenges you. There's his cadence is very fast, and I think if you're if you're used to more of like an NALCS casting style, it's not as quick because pastry time's like da 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 da, -da. like it's uh you know we're talking about the mid lane and oh what do you think about not he'll never ask me a question because I I hate when uh, <laughs> play by play like it's don't ever ask your co-caster questions like yeah. we'll talk about things that we want to talk about um but you just you constantly are, are having this like he's constantly pushing or advancing the narrative and he's he's leading it through and you he'll he'll set you up beautifully for um like your strong color points and it's just it's constantly moving in a big direction uh but that's that's the play-by-play -play caster's job most people look at them they're just oh they don't they don't know anything about league of legends because they're a play-by-play -play caster which obviously they have like a baseline knowledge but it's not going to match to the analytical caster but the thing is is the play-by-play -play is in charge of the primary flow of the cast um, and the direction that the cast takes. So uh, we call it advancing and expanding and advancing a narrative point. That's when a play-by-play -play caster takes in like, oh, you know, let's take a, a glance at the inventory items. We've got the Trinity Force up for Corky, which means that the mid-game power spec is coming through. Um, and then expanding would then be jumping on the top and, oh, yeah, he's got the Trinity Force, but he's actually behind the clock. So this power spec really doesn't mean anything. And it's just kind of breathing room for them right now. So I'm not moving the narrative at all. So he brings up itemization. Uh, power spike. I'm just like, oh, this is your side footnote on it. 
And then from there, he'll expand it again. Well, as we go into this dragon fight, like you said, because they're behind the clock, even though he has the Trinity Force, they're unable to contest for this. See how that works? Yeah. But with I, Sifa... Yeah, uh, like, Riot's real strength has always been in hiring the correct um, talent for the broadcast. And I think that's really what's uh, propelled League of Legends like as an eSport like, way forward ahead of just about anything else. They're very good at training with the resources that they have. Um, but with Sifa and the Kespa Cup, because I was the veteran caster going in and because he was transitioning into a play-by-play -play role, um, I had to leave the narrative. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing the advancing from a position that typically doesn't. So it created a very different dynamic. I don't think, um, personally, like reflecting back, obviously it's not like the strongest cast. Um, but I, well, I don't you were going into a strange... Uh, region and also <laughs> just like a kind of fuck around tournament all told like it turned out to be a really great tournament that was a super, super fun to watch with great if casting might I add but I thought that there was actually, a, we covered a lot of like really interesting information. We, we covered um, Kindred and some of her counters and you know the Baron pressure that she's going to have and again this we were the first Kindred patch that we got to like talk about that champion and like set up like these are the expectations of the meta um we covered the double teleport like the rise and fall of it the semi-global compositions coming out and the counters available to that we talked about because it, it was also the changes to the passive amount of gold that was coming in because um that had been increased as well as the scaling on towers and creeps and how that translated into efficient build pass and why Lissandra was coming into the meta. Like I went really deep on, you know, this is why Lissandra is going to be a must pick or not ban, but she's going to be like a big priority champion. Um, and that rise is going to be a big priority champion and then setting up for gangplank as well. And kind of what the, the pros and cons of GP, you know, that he is kind of like a pseudo zigs, but the difference is how he interacts with Baron minions and because how, it's a structure-focused meta, and we're starting to get more attention onto the Baron in terms of setting up for Siege. Like, the problem is, is Ziggs, because he does magic damage, will not be able to clear Baron creeps as well as Gangplank does, because he doesn't doesn't care. He just blows them up, and that's why there's such a priority there, as well as the AoE crit, which makes him far more gold-efficient in the itemization through uh, Infinity Edge. But his, like, core itemization is so expensive. It's one of the most expensive builds in the game. Yeah. So, like, we had, like, these really cool talking points, but the issue is, is my play-by-play -play caster was not experienced enough to set that up or drive that narrative to present it. So, a lot of the time, the cast would, the dynamic would be more dominated by the color caster. Like, this is the things that I want to talk about. My play-by-play -play caster um, is inexperienced and doesn't know how to necessarily set them up, so I just have to kind of, like, shoehorn it in. So, it created, I think, probably a jarring flow of a cast. But I don't think it was, like, awful. I actually thought that our information was probably top-notch. One of the better, um, like, analytical breakdowns that I've done for a patch. Yeah, I, I definitely had a good time watching it. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> so... Sorry? Mo yeah. Uh, moving forward, like, you got the International Wildcard. Is this in Invitational? Is that, like, the full name of it? International Wildcard? I think it might be Invitational. Yeah, it, like... IWCI jumps out. I, I can't remember if that's the one for Worlds or if they have a different one for MCI. MSI? Jesus. MCI is the old telecom. Woo! Anyway, <laughs> I'm old. So, like, what are you looking forward to in the International Wildcard? Possibly Invitational, possibly not. Um, those tournaments are actually a lot of fun. Oh, they uh, totally are. 
Yeah, it's it's really cool to have so many different um, nations, and like there's there's a lot of pride for these teams going in, and it's pretty much a mini world. And I feel my only the only thing is I wish that um, the IWC was treated more like a major tournament and mm-hmm. given kind of the same respect and um, like production of something like MSI or like worlds or even like playoffs um i mean it gets a it it does a good job but it's like it could get more support globally from us yeah I'm, it's got all the pomp and circumstance of an international competition because you know they have all these people coming from all over all over the world except there's also the storyline of like all of these regions need to prove themselves at worlds because they're not one of the quote unquote major regions. But this is the thing, and you know, people will always say that um, the reason why no one cares about the international wild or the wild card regions is because they're not as good as the major regions, which is technically and factually true, yes. But you also have to understand that these wild card teams, like think about Kaboom. Kaboom, I mean, their ever famous game against Alliance. Yeah. Um, these these wildcard teams are the best from those regions, but it's not like they're playing, you know, the middle of the pack LCS teams. They're also playing the best of the power regions who have so much more so many more resources, a much larger talent pool, and they're able to beat them sometimes. It's not like they're just constantly I mean, they're considered free points in that circuit, but upsets do happen and have happened, and not just in single instances. And it's against literally the elite of the uh, power regions. So you can imagine if you took a team like um, INTZ or the Chiefs or Detonation Focus Main, you put them in the NALCS, they probably wouldn't get smashed. I'm not saying that they would come first, but they, I mean, they, they probably wouldn't get relegated. Yeah, so I, mean, I it, think like, that, that there's, entire tournament this, is a free underdog story, you know. Yeah, and I I think that there's this um there's like this assumption that there's like all of the NALCS teams and then the wildcard teams come. It's like, no 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 no. You don't understand. Like these these teams are it's a very uphill battle. And when they're shown on the international stage, they're also playing the best that your region has to offer. And sometimes they do pull the upset. Oh yeah, like it. That's just the story of all sports, though. Like, every once in a while, some billionaire will get in his head, like, I'm going to start a new NFL because all this NFL talent, like, there's only 32 teams. They're going to wash off somehow, but they don't realize that, like, there's 32 teams and maybe 16 good quarterbacks. So, like, (laughs) the best of the OCE is way better than the middle of the pack in North America, but they're constantly facing off against the best of North America, who's actually kind of good in the long run. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that the uh, the current meta that we're sitting in empowers... How to say this politically correct? <laughs> I think it is much easier than it has been in the past to upset the elite team due to the current iteration of the meta. I think the phrase is low mechanical ceiling. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Um, when I was at, I believe it was PAX, you could 1v1 a, uh, a Street Fighter professional or a StarCraft professional or a League of Legends professional at one of the booths. Um, and if you beat them, you would get like, oh, you know, like free keyboard or s- some sort of gear. Um, and that day, 
the League of Legends professional did give out some gear to, you know, the the people milling around who challenged them, but not once was the Street Fighter player beaten or the StarCraft player beaten. And it's not to put down League of Legends, but I think that a bigger part of League, of course, is its 5v5 and its strategy and communication and teamwork aspect rather mm-hmm. than the raw mechanical ceiling, if that makes sense. No, I get you. But at the same time, Lupe Fiasco, the rapper, just beat Daigo the Beast in Street Fighter V. So I don't know what you're talking about. There you go. Also, I just really like Lupe Fiasco. I think he's a really good rapper. All right. So I think that brings us pretty much to modern day. And I think I'm going to call it a night here. Nailed it. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Indiana Frosker in Black. Alright, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first episode of my show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, let me know what you think on Twitter. I'm at HelicopterSpy. Uh, yeah, and just let me know who else you'd like to see on this show, and I'll try to bug them and try to talk to them. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you again hopefully soon. <laughs>